Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learnit family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. Um, Vice President at Autism Spectrum Therapies, part of the Learn Family Companies, providing ABA therapy to individuals with autism and developmental disabilities across the country. Um, we got a theme going right now, and, and we're we're going to give you another um, research show pretty close together. This is a little bit of a different research show, which which I think is great. It's it's nice to go with some of the other topics. Um, talking a little bit less about specific causes or, or genetic causes of autism, but talking a little bit more about kind of like what that leads to, what does that result in, things like um, how it ties into language delays and social delays, and even getting into a little bit about how kind of that could educate us with treatment and how we could design a little bit of treatment. Um, so it's a really nice complement to what we've been talking about in, in some of our recent shows where we were kind of now taking this, how did autism, what was the cause of autism? Why does this child have autism? Now, what does that mean in terms of maybe some presenting um, deficits or areas to work on as well as some potential strengths? And then how do you then take that forward a little bit more into treatment? Um, so we're really starting to get a fuller continuum, a fuller spectrum of kind of the the research behind autism, especially when you start factoring in um, all of our great conversations with with Dr. Hannah Rue um, in terms of the actual research behind treatment integrity and, and the treatment designs for applied behavior analysis. So today we're going to be joined by Dr. Helen Tager-Flussberg. Um, Dr. Tager-Flussberg is a professor of anatomy and neurobiology at Boston University School of Medicine and Professor of Psychology at Boston University, as well as the Director of the Center for Autism Research Excellence at BU. Dr. Tegaflossberg's interests lie in the language and social cognitive development of people with autism spectrum disorder, as well as other developmental language disorders. She's been conducting research for over 30 years and focuses that research on investigating language, theory of mind, and related social cognitive aspects of autism spectrum disorder. She also has been on the editorial boards of many professional journals, edited several books, and published many articles and chapters. Helen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so, you know, when, when we were getting ready for the show, um, I realized despite living in, on the East Coast and, and living, you know, outside of Boston for a few years, um, I didn't really know too much about the Care Center. Um, so maybe we could start off where you could kind of tell us a little bit about the Care Center and, um, and some of the research that you guys do. Okay. Uh, well, I've been at Boston University now for about 16 years. And when I was first, first wow. came here, I was at the Medical Center and there, mm -hmm. um, our research lab was under a different name. And then when I moved 
uh, to the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. The university built uh, this beautiful uh, research facility for us, um, and that is what CARE is. So it's a fully functioning research facility. We don't um, have uh, clinical facilities, but our research, of course, crosses clinical lines, and we have quite a number of studies going on right now, including studies of older children and adolescents who are minimally verbal, and we're trying to understand why they don't acquire language um, the way other children with autism do. Uh, we have another very exciting study, which is looking at the effects of a specific uh, targeted intervention called JASPA and looking at how it leads to uh, not only behavioral changes in the child, but also changes in brain functioning. Um, and then uh, the other uh, core area of work that we do is on infants who are at risk for autism because we want to see what are the earliest signs? How early could we predict that a child may go down the path of developing autism and developing language problems that may uh, be the first sign that they will have an or later end up with an autism diagnosis. And our goal really is to understand the early development, um, eventually knowing something about when development goes awry uh, will help us understand how and when to target um, families with interventions and target the child to help them and perhaps lead to a kind of a prevention, um, if you will, or at the very least, um, a milder outcome. Because we know that the younger children are, the more plastic their brains yeah. are, and that we can have the greatest influence. So, you know, Focusing in on the, the younger learners, um, you know, so it sounds like the ultimate goal is to then be able to figure out um, this is where it went awry, and then this is the intervention mm -hmm. that gets paired with it. Am I understanding correctly? Something like that, yes. And we think, though, I, I don't think we're naive anymore to think that every child mm -hmm. is going to follow exactly the same path. I think... Sure. We know enough at this point that there's so much variability in this population. And so that's another one of our goals with all this early work is to try to understand what are the origins, not just of autism itself, mm. but of the variability that we see in this population um, and sure. to find very early predictors. What, you know, in terms of that, like what have you... Do you have any early findings? Is there anything that you've kind of identified so far in terms of those early predictors or, or in mm -hmm. the variability of, of this one brain versus that other brain? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so one, of the, one of the things I should begin with is to tell you who are we really studying when we say we have an infant okay. at risk. These are not infants that have autism. Babies mm. in the first year of life do not have autism, and that we know from a lot of research that's been done over the last decade. Um, so okay. we pick infants who have an older sibling 
who does have an autism diagnosis. And the reason we pick them is that we know that they are, these later-born siblings are at higher risk because this is such a strongly genetic disorder. Um, so they, this, it runs in families, and therefore what we do know from both our own work and the work of other people, that about one in five uh, later-born siblings will end up with an autism diagnosis, okay? So wow. we're, following, we're following both the four in five who don't end up with autism as well as the one in five who do end up with autism. And one of the important gotcha. things that we have found is that, in fact, there are differences that we see very early on in how the brain is functioning. We use electrophysiology. That's when you put electrodes, um, which sounds a little scarier than it is. In our system, it's just right. basically a whole bunch, uh, a little cap with wet sponges on the end. Mm -hmm. And the, the, this system picks up the electrical brain activity. It's uh, babies tolerate this very easily. They enjoy wearing the cap. And they don't really know um, that this is any different uh, than any mm -hmm. other cap that they're wearing. But we're picking up their brain activity. And during the first year of life, we look at their brain activity just when they're sitting there um, on the mom's lap, um, what, maybe watching something interesting on a video or watching somebody blow bubbles, mm -hmm. just some very restful activity. We also look at their brain activity when we present them with speech sounds or with faces. So we're looking at how is their brain responding to social signals such as language and uh, faces. Um, and so this is our primary method of investigating what is the brain like in an infant who's at risk for autism. And one of the interesting things that we found is that very early on, there are differences, not just in brain compared to what we would call a low-risk baby, a baby who does not have a family history of autism. There are differences both in the infants who end up with autism as well as in the infants who don't end up with autism but come from wow. a family that is at risk. So tells us that it's, the story is not going to be so simple. Uh, we thought we would pick up differences. Um, we, that was why we investigate this. Uh, but we didn't realize that it was going to be harder to disentangle the differences in the brain from those who end up with autism and those who don't. Um, intriguingly, we find that the differences that we pick up are even more related to language outcomes than they are to the social outcomes that would be more in line with an autism mm. diagnosis. Um, and we're not quite sure how to interpret that other than does it really matter from the point of view, from the clinical point of view? Probably not. Um, because we know that all the interventions that we have got now um, for children with autism work especially well 
to promote language development. And particularly if we do developmentally oriented um, interventions mm -hmm. with very young children that focus not just on language itself, but on all the skills that are the precursors to language, like imitating what someone is doing or saying, like joint attention skills, sharing an interest, mm -hmm. sharing back and forth, all that social engagement, even before the onset of language, um, mm -hmm. helps to promote language skills. And we think that mm -hmm. by targeting language, which is a core social domain after all, that um, in fact, we may be seeing more in the domain of language, may just be more transparent, we may have better measures for that. Um, and so, Either way, we think that what we're picking up is important and suggest to us that these are infants who are at risk given differences in how their brains function and for whom naturalistic early intervention that would just provide an extra uh, developmental boost, if you will, uh, may be extremely important to lower those figures from one in five ending up with autism to a much lower number than that. The, um, the, the, what you were describing about the language versus the social, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me because, you know, so many of the things you described, I'm like, yep, that's, that's a good ABA intervention. Um, it, it all makes sense, especially now with, with I think, how ABA early intervention is, is evolving more and more to focus in on, on verbal behavior and different things in the natural environment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I want to go, go back to this, um, what, what I think is just, just fascinating and so surprising is that, you know, when you look at all of these, um, you know, at-risk children, whether they ultimately are diagnosed with autism or not, that they all have some development or, or differences in their brain. Um, you know, I think you mentioned the ones who maybe don't get a, an ASD diagnosis, you know, it, it sounds like there may be the benefit in giving them some kind of basic lower level, just, just development um, or intervention just to kind of like, like almost thinking of like, like a booster shot. Like, uh, like I remember being a kid, my mom had me go to the preschool or, or, and like do some extra stuff as a little kid before kindergarten to get like that booster shot to be ready for school. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, some, some form of support for families um, and support mm -hmm. for parenting activities uh, is, mm -hmm. I think, what may what, what it it doesn't hurt, and it could only be helpful yeah. to be paying some extra attention to these infants yeah. whose brains are clearly developing in somewhat different ways, and um, we you know, trying to make a difference early on will put their brain and behavioral development back on, on a track that's, um, that's going to, you know, yeah. really provide a more optimal outcome for those babies. Have, 
have you guys been able to track, I guess, what, what, what kind of comes to mind for me? And, and I spent a lot of years working with an, with an older population. So my mind kind of goes to the kid who's not, who has the sibling with autism who is not, yet, who is not diagnosed himself. Have you been able to track mm-hmm. these children long enough to then be able to say at 15, this is where they go and this is where maybe it veers off? Or, or does it potentially uh-huh. veer off later on where like because i always think about like um i think about almost like this is like a preventative type of thing okay their brain is developing Mm -hmm. differently let's put this intervention in let's be preventative because we know they may need something it's not as intense but we'll then prevent these other things have we tracked it far enough to see if at if or when and how it may be years um we really we haven't done that. There have been uh, two studies that have been published in the literature that have taken infants who show risk signs um, in the first year of life and offered okay. a, a kind of a booster shot intervention at that point. And both of them um, show pretty interesting results of uh, uh, effectiveness. Um, maybe they don't prevent autism completely, but you certainly end up with much milder symptomatology. And, you know, there's a huge difference between mild autism and severe autism. And, um, you know, whatever we can do, I I, I think we don't look at this. We're we're looking to prevent severe autism, ultimately as much as we can sure. and to reduce to reduce um, the symptomatology. We only follow our infants out to the age of three. So I can't really tell gotcha. you about other developmental outcomes. Um, but other studies are beginning to follow those siblings. And even the ones who did not receive an autism diagnosis at the age of three um, a very small mm-hmm. proportion do end up with that diagnosis at a somewhat older age, like five or six, right. but a rather mild right. mild variant, or they may show signs of um, uh, ADHD, um, attention deficit mm. disorder, or signs of uh, mild anxiety um, and other behavioral problems of that sort. So they're not you know, sort of, uh, there could be these other developmental outcomes um, in these infants, in, in these children gotcha. who don't enter sure. with autism. No, make that, that makes sense. And, um, you know, the, the other thing that came to mind, and I, I have no idea how you would do this. I don't know if this is possible, but it kind of just like that stream of consciousness of, of how this, like, as I process this, you know, is there a way to then compare the siblings? You know, I, I have to assume, or maybe it is just given the timing, it's potentially too late. But ultimately, like, is there a way to then compare, okay, this is the younger sibling, and let's look at kind of the brain comparisons to the older sibling? Ah, uh, I think that would be a really, really interesting project to do. Unfortunately, you know, you only get funding to do so much work. And the work that we've done <laughs> right. with the infants, uh, we cannot stretch sure. the research dollars 
to extend right. the study of the older infants, I, of the older siblings. I really wish we could do that. We've done that a little bit with um, okay. in older children, actually. Um, we have okay. looked at uh, brain structure, and there have been a small number of studies on siblings. And indeed, they continue to be different from a, a typically developing child of the same age. Um, mm. And so, for example, we know that in most people, language is processed primarily in the left hemisphere. What we see is okay. that a greater proportion of these siblings who don't have autism, um, but, uh, you know, their older or their younger sibling may have autism, they may show more um, involvement of the right hemisphere in processing language. Um, and there may be structural differences in the brain in the areas that are uh, related to uh, language. Well, we've looked at language. That's not to say you don't see differences in other part of the brain, but the main focus of our work here is on language. And so that's why I highlight that. Gotcha. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, as I said before, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, being doing the intervention, seeing that emphasis on language, I mean, I think that becomes as much as the social – it is a social deficit, and that's always been part of the diagnosis. Just those language deficits seem to be more and more critical, and, and interventions seem to be more and more based around language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, it's – looking at these, these – um, all these different kids and, and looking at the different participants. And like you said, like I know it's, you know, as you referenced before, like grant dollars, you, you can only stretch them so far. Um, where, where do you guys, how do you guys find participants? Um, where, where are you reaching out to? Cause you have to reach out to a broad base to compare, you know, you're looking at kids who are not diagnosed. You're looking at kids who have a sibling. You're looking at kids who are, who have a sibling and then maybe at risk for a diagnosis themselves. Um, is this something that you're working with community partners to get awareness out and have people like sign up to participate like early on? Um, what, what does that look like? Oh, <laughs> you have just described every meeting that I have um, <laughs> during the day uh, with every one of my projects where we talk about recruitment. Uh, we reach gotcha. out. Um, to the community. So uh, if there are community events um, on the topic of autism, that you know, bringing in autism families, we go there um, and uh, try to explain the work that we're doing and recruit families, and that can be very successful. Um, we try yeah. to partner with uh, clinical groups, with clinicians uh, who are on the front line, the developmental pediatricians or neurologists, um, or some of the clinical facilities that are involved. Uh, we try to um, partner with early intervention. Um, so, you know, we, we take, and schools, uh, we actually have a wonderful partnership uh, with a couple of schools that serve kids with autism in nice. the Boston area. That um, if The system's a little bit different here than it is let's say, in California. Um, And um, so, yes, uh, we try to uh, put ourselves out there and have um, as many of the families 
uh, get to know who we are and uh, want to uh, be part of our work as, as we possibly can. That's great. I was I was really impressed. Um, you know, prior to to the show, I I went to um, to your website and and I thought it was really cool. There were so many different testimonials where it seemed like, um, and I know you know this was about more than just the the study that we've primarily been speaking of, but people seem to be really glowing about their interactions with the center and you know talking about the benefits that they were getting. And I, you know, I. I've read a lot of websites and, and a lot of different groups, and, and I don't always see the families commenting on how being part of this research study helped their child and helped them in that way. So it was really cool to see, you know, all of this this comments about um, how just being part of a study, how beneficial that was to the child and the family. It was just, uh, you know, I was curious kind of how that impacted recruitment and all those things. So that, that's great. Well, you know, it does, and but I have to tell you, I think a lot of times um, uh, clinicians and other providers um, worry about telling their families about a research study that they know is going on. I think they worry that we are, oh, wow. you know, a little bit like Frankenstein, um, and I think they don't appreciate how important it is uh, for the families themselves, and, you know, Sure. Although we are not a clinic and we're clearly research, the benefit right. that the families get, even if we're not giving them anything very tangible, um, mm-hmm. we're giving them so much information back about their child. We give them opportunities. I mean, so much of what we do is not just test the child, but lots of interviews with the uh, parents particularly, because mm. of course they're the ones that really know their child the best. And yeah. uh, from our point of view, um, getting their insights provides a more complete picture. And that's part of the reason I think the families are so excited. And, you know, for a family, we talk a lot and we all acknowledge and agree this is a brain disorder. We know that. Right. But you know what, until the parent actually sees that because they've enrolled their child in a study, they're not going to get a brain scan that is helpful to them in a clinical sense. But they come into a study like this and they can acknowledge this helps them to more deeply appreciate that, in fact, autism began you know, much earlier than they could have ever thought about because the signs that we're seeing soon Mm. after birth can be traced back to events that are actually beginning to happen probably in the second trimester of pregnancy. I think participating in research like this makes a huge difference. Um, the, The other study that I talked about where we're looking at brain changes in response to an intervention, we're largely trying to reach families who are on waiting lists to get a diagnosis. Their pediatrician has told them, your your child looks like they may have autism, but you need to go to a specialist right now to get a, a, a diagnosis. Well, they contact the specialist, and they could be four, six, nine months on a waiting list. So what we're trying yeah. to do is to bring those families in, 
we do a diagnostic evaluation so we can give them something back right away. And not only that, but they get enrolled in our interventions. We're offering two different types of intervention. It's a, a, a randomized trial where they get one or the other. Okay. We, both, we know that both are very effective. And we're then looking, mm-hmm. they're enrolled in the study. They get a, a, you know, five weeks of intervention. This doesn't, they can have mm-hmm. this on top of other interventions that they're getting. But I think especially for these families, they don't need to wait any longer. Um, so that, I think, is a, another study, another That's example really cool. where there's a, a real tangible benefit to a family um, who's been told your child may have autism, but now you have to wait a long time to get the official yeah. um, diagnosis. So, you know, uh, we think it's really, uh, at this point, I would say we try very hard to develop research programs that we think are going to be uh, have the most impact um, on the families um, that we have known for many years. I mean, I've been doing research yeah. on autism in the Boston area for over 40 years now, and um, wow. and I'm very proud of the work uh, that we have done. And what I'm most proud of is this amazing team that I have um, who really carry out all the day-to-day um, activities related to our research. Oh, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Um, you know, you mentioned the the response to intervention. Um, is that the, um, are you referring to the, the study you talked about earlier, um, the JASPER project, where you're looking yes. at the JASPER yes. intervention? So yes. I'm not familiar with that. It, what What is that? I was just curious. Um, so JASPER is an intervention. Well, we're also we're not only doing Jasper, but we're also doing a parent intervention, okay. where we uh, gotcha. provide uh, training to parents. So that's an alternative to nice. Jasper, but training the parents in the same way, uh, the same kinds of things that the therapist is doing in Jasper. So Jasper was developed okay. by uh, uh, Dr. Connie Cassery at UCLA. And uh, what it is, it's a very targeted um, intervention that focuses on developing joint attention skills, that's the J-A, symbolic play, that's the S-P, engagement, and regulation. And it's a play-based intervention, and we uh, offer two one-hour intense therapy sessions a week, which is why I say it's very targeted to these specific skills, and Mm -hmm. um, it is done over and above whatever other interventions the child is receiving. Um, But it's specifically targeting a range of social communication play skills um, Mm -hmm. and is, has been demonstrated by Dr. Cassery and her colleagues that it leads to very effective um, and meaningful changes in the child's uh, behavior um, on all those dimensions mm-hmm. as well as increases in language. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so it's another developmentally based intervention. 
And what we're interested in doing in this study, and we're collaborating with Dr. Cassidy and her colleagues at UCLA, they're providing uh, all the training and, and are, have been involved mm -hmm. in, the, in the design of the study as well, is looking to see whether we see changes in brain activity when they are uh, watching and engaging in um, um, different activities uh, that are sort of socially grounded. Right. It sounds, is it, you know, it sounds similar, um, at least in terms of the domains it's focusing on, to PRT, to pivotal response treatment. Is, do they have a relation? Is there a... Uh, there, there are parallels and there are differences, as gotcha. there are with gotcha. all uh, behavioral sure. therapies. We could probably um, characterize um, them on several dimensions. Uh, you know, how, how structured is the intervention? Uh, what is the right. uh, target? What is the focus of the intervention? Um, how mm -hmm. play-oriented is it? Um, and so forth. So we could probably, they vary a little bit. Um, right. I don't know of any study that has compared JASPER to PRT. Uh, my own hunch is that uh, they'd both be shown to be effective. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, arguing for one over another. Uh, oh, we course. know that these developmentally uh, grounded, play-based interventions um, are really important, particularly yeah. uh, for young children, uh, how important they are to make a difference. We think that by adding, you know, a look at changes in the brain, we might get um, the medical community to buy into the effectiveness yeah. of behavioral intervention in a way you know, I think everyone in medical communities often think, well, you know, pills could do this just as easily and much more, right. much more rapidly. But, you know, uh, I think uh, even when we do have those pills available, we will still want to be doing behavioral interventions with children who um, have autism spectrum disorder. And oh, yeah. I think the more... The more research we show on the effectiveness of these interventions, the better off the community at large will be. Sure. Well, you know, it seems to me, though, from like a practitioner's perspective, like I hear trends. I mean, I'm hearing consistency in everything we're talking about. And to me, it reinforces certain things that I've really come to believe and, and incorporate into my treatment over the last 15 years, um, as well as giving parents some answers as to what they should be looking for. And you, you touched on it. It's, you know, I, I had a professor who, who once said to me, you know, having, I come from more of a PRT background and I've, I've mm -hmm. been trained in that. And I've seen that within my own ABA practice. Um, you know, and I go back to a professor of mine who really commented that joint attention was the key. You know, if there were, if there was one thing that you really got to get and if there was one sign that was critical is joint attention. And then I think about, you know, the other components of Jasper and, and and this is what kind of hit me when I when you were describing it and why I asked if it was any correlation to PRT is 
the domains you're talking about, when you pair that up with language, kind of like we were talking about before, as a practitioner, if I'm coming in with a play-based naturalistic approach and I'm hitting these critical social domains, which are going to also incorporate and tie in language development, that is a critical intervention. And the days of maybe having a, you know, old school tabletop structured, you know, DTT approach, which I think sometimes people think is maybe still what ABA is, just kind of, again, looking from my lens, um, those days are past. Now, that may be good for some kids, but our goal should be ultimately to shift into more of this natural environment. That should be maybe a short-term approach to then get to these naturalistic approaches because not just of the skills you're going to develop, but because of the brain development that you're describing. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. a, basically a, me. It's almost like a roadmap to a parent and to a, a provider to say this is what we should be working for to make our interventions look like. Mm-hmm. I think that's especially true for very young children. I think you know up yes, until the absolutely. ages of six or seven. I think though, mm-hmm. for older children, um, for whom these developmentally based interventions have have not um, helped the child, the child is still not speaking, still has has um, yes. severe and growing challenging behaviors because we know that those increase over time. I think at that point, um, what we need to have, as you say, is we need to be flexible and we need to, it's not a question of throwing away DTT and replacing it, it's a question of sure. seeing what best fits the behavioral profile of an individual child. And I think we're not there yet yeah. to know what that would be right. like. I think I do think a lot of clinicians um, that I know do have an intuitive, um, uh, just the expertise and the uh, gift mm-hmm. for gauging. Uh, the degree of structure that each individual child will need and adapt to it mm-hmm. over time um, and right. be able to provide a kind of an optimal. But I think the focus needs to be, as you say, um, we know the, those core skills that need to be the focus. Yeah. Um, and that I think, you know, having this done in the context of play um, especially for younger children, is the most meaningful uh, way in which you can um, uh, really see quite um, early on, within a very brief period of time, significant changes. I've been just astounded at a couple of the kids that we've had in our study over the last uh, couple of months who, you know, when they enrolled in the study... You know, that all the child did was break a toy apart or just toss it aside. Nothing, no meaningful interaction with objects that they could then share with the therapist. And then when the the space of uh, three or four weeks was beginning to do really quite complex, um, uh, Mm -hmm. socially engaged play. So... Um, and along with that change in their play, you saw so much more, so much more sharing, so much more joint attention, oh, yeah. and 
and much more verbalization. Um, whether or not they had, you know, uh, uh, within three weeks, you're not going to see huge language gain. Right. But they were certainly right. using language or vocalization a lot more. They were communicating right. more in those play-based interactions. So I've become, yeah. um, you know, so I agree with you. Um, with young children, that's the way to go. And I think we still don't know how to be more effective than we currently are with older children who didn't acquire language during early intervention before the age of five or six. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and that's where I was kind of looking at it is this, what we're pulling here, really emphasizing it for those early learners, that under the six-year window. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for me, what I what I see so often is I see as the rate of autism diagnosis increases, I see the number of clinicians coming out of university programs, coming into the field, increasing as well. And sometimes I think that we lose sight of the child development side of things. Um, You know, I talk to our Mm -hmm. staff all the time. It's great that you know this science and it's great that you read this textbook, but things like what we're talking about now give you so much more insight into understanding how children develop. You know, I constantly reflect back on, on my own daughter who who's two years old, and I think constantly about, okay, great, how is she developing right now? Let's compare this. What is developmentally appropriate? And then applying that back to the kids we work with, and I, I think what I notice is more and more people losing sight of that, and that clinical intuition you talked about, because I agree with you, especially as the kids get older, it, you know, I don't think I ever had uh, someone be like, okay, great, here is the structured philosophy in the same way that some of the PRT literature talks about it, how some of the verbal mm-hmm. behavior models talk about it. It is it is very much intuition, and it's hard to get to know that person, understand how they're, where they are. Um, I, I see that intuition decreasing as we grow because not as many people are coming with it as these, there's so many from paths. So at, selfishly as a well, practitioner, I, I listen to everything you're saying and saying, this is like a nice parallel for us to keep in mind as we read all that ABA literature as well. So I think one of the things that happens in a research clinic, a research center yeah. as opposed to in a clinical practice is that our yeah. team is also constantly interacting with typically developing, whether they're babies or toddlers or preschoolers yeah. or older children. They're always seeing what typical is. And I think that yeah. helps to inform them, and especially the totally. younger children, to see what the difference is. Because I think it's hard to capture um, what a child should be doing. And how a, how a typical yeah. child really does behave. And I think, a, you know, um, therapists need to spend maybe not equal time, but once a week get together with a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's typically developing. I mean, you now do a little mm-hmm. bit more often than that yeah. with your own daughter. Right. Um, but to do that so that you more deeply appreciate it's because it yeah. is so intuitive, you know. That's the whole thing about 
social communicative development. We pay no attention to it. It just seems to happen and blossom in a typical child. And it's only when it fails to happen that, you know, we, we start to worry about, is this a child with autism? Then I think the therapist right. loses sight of what they're really trying to get, what their goal should be for this child. Mm -hmm. And I think having play-based therapies reminds the therapist all the time because that is the target. The target is a naturalistic yeah. play interaction with the child, which of right. course is less naturalistic because there's all kinds of therapeutic <laughs> know-how that's going into it. Um, right, right. And so, um, you know, and that's what I think uh, is, is, is the goal always. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And it's, um, you know, it's just here, there's so many layers to all of this. And so it's just, it's, it's, I find it fascinating to hear about this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. That I don't know what Jasper's is because it's out of UCLA and I'm, 20 minutes away from Westwood. Um, but it's to, to hear these layers to it. It just, I feel like it just educates me so much more. And I just feel like I'm so much more prepared just after this brief conversation to say, I've just added another layer to how I talk to a parent to say, your child is starting early intervention. What should our goals be? What, what is it that we're working for? And yeah. to give them yeah. different dimensions, yeah. kind of like you said, this wasn't something like this started in the, as you said, in, sometime in the second trimester, you know, we're going to get in early and here's what we're going to do and hit all the benefits that can come with it beyond just mm -hmm. your kid is going to meet this goal that I wrote in a treatment plan. Um, right. You know, we, we, I always want to go beyond that. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, this is just so informative. You know, we've been chatting for so long. We're, we're, we're coming up on time. Um, it has been just incredible. I've learned so much today. There's like four different things that you've quoted, just like stats and figures that I wasn't even aware of, which um, I'm so I'm so glad we spoke um, for families out there, particularly families in the Boston area. Um, how would they go about learning more about participating or the center? Um, because as you said, and, and I, I actually my daughter has participated in a number of language studies. Um, I personally found it to be incredibly helpful just for, for all the reasons you said, getting some of those updates and reports and, and learning more about my daughter's language. It was, it was just beneficial. Um, and, and she's not on the spectrum. And so I think, you know, everyone, I recommend participating in these things. Where can people find out more about the center and uh, potentially sure, maybe participating sure. in one of your studies? Oh, absolutely. That would be delightful. Um, I'm at Boston University, so uh, to get to our website, it's very easy, bu.edu slash autism, and that'll take you directly to CARE, which stands for the Center for Autism Research Excellence. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I, I just have loved this conversation, and uh, I kind of oh, like want to go out and too. do a new assessment. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I've enjoyed it, too. Thank you so much. Really glad you guys were able to join this, this show today and, and hear our conversation. Um, I really, 
you know, I, I, I can't say it enough. I really get excited about this research side of things, understanding the, the science, the medical side of what it is we're talking about. I think, you know, as I, as I kind of mentioned in some recent shows, you know, I spend most of my day talking to parents and talking to payers, um, insurance companies, school districts, um, state entities, and I, I see the shift coming. I see the shift from everyone I talk to, and, and it's not just insurance companies or people paying for services. It's, it's the people receiving services, and I think there's this greater desire to understand how the science and the medical side of this ties into the therapy. And I, I love that we're starting to really get into that on a lot of our recent shows. I think this is going to be really important as we proceed. And I think it's going to be really important for families as well as for providers and, and professionals to understand how all of this comes together because it's going to give us first a greater understanding of how to design treatment programs, but it's also going to provide us a greater understanding of how, why, and when we should have these treatment programs funded. And, and the reality is that you know, all the services we're talking about, they're, they're not cheap. Um, and, and there's a lot of studies out there to really pinpoint just how expensive all this is. And you know, most of you guys listening are, are parents and, or have loved ones on the spectrum, and, and you guys know you know, this is not something that is is easy to put together day in, day out. And so to have this greater understanding, it helps keep these programs being funded by the insurance companies, school districts, regional centers, waiver programs, um, you name it. Um, but it also gives us a better understanding of why we do what we do, why we focus on what we do, and, and you know, what what's at the core of what we should be looking at, not just a goal for the sake of meeting a goal, goal that treats something that's directly related to a deficit associated with this child diagnosis of autism. So, um, as always, more info at autismtherapies.com, AST's Facebook page. Come find us. Come talk to us. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.